And here we go, everybody. Another edition of Jamal About Sports coming to you on a Wednesday evening, April 11th, 2018. Kicking off the show right here, right now by Fatboy Slim. As always, I'm your host, Jamal Hayden. We've got a big show to get to. We've got Major League Baseball, the Mets on a roll, the Yankees struggling, some other news and, ro- and notes from around the league. We've got an NBA playoff preview, and we'll uh, kick in some two cents around uh, the draft, which uh, I got to tell you, is, uh, is it's only a couple of weeks away, but boy, <laughs> I mean, this... This pre-draft season seems to me to be the longest uh, uh, of any uh, in, in recent memory. And, and I don't think it's because necessarily the date is any different, but um, just all the chatter. Uh, we've had two big trades already. Um, and, uh, you know, with the Jets moving up to three and um, Cincinnati and Buffalo, uh, you know, Buffalo moving up to 11, uh, as I think they try to continue their climb into the top 10 to try to get one of these quarterbacks. So we'll, we'll talk a little uh, NFL draft as well. But we begin with Major League Baseball. We begin with my Metsies. And uh, listen, great win last night, 8-6 over the Marlins, a game in which the Mets led 3-0 with Jacob deGrom on the hill. Um Figured that that would uh, they would cruise to a win. The Marlins are intentionally terrible. We can debate the merits of uh, that philosophy uh, on another show. Uh, my two cents: I am uh, not a fan. Uh, I understand it, quote unquote, worked for the Astros because they won the World Series last year. Uh, it worked for the Cubs because they made it to the World. Uh, they won the World Series the year before. Um, but I think, you know, if you're a fan, do you want to endure six years where you know you are have no shot and are completely uncompet- non-competitive to, to then win the World Series? Now, of course, the idea is to build a sustainable, successful team, right? And, you know, right now the Astros uh, look like they're the prohibitive favorites, although it's very early, to uh, at least win their division. Uh, again, we talk about it all the time. Getting to the playoffs in Major League Baseball, there are no guarantees, right? It's a total crapshoot. Uh, the disconnect between the length of the regular season and then the sort of uh, arbitrary nature of the playoffs, um, you know, it, 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 that's just kind of how it is. You know, you can have the best team for 162 games. doesn't mean that you're going to win the World Series. doesn't even mean you'll make the World Series. Um, but anyway, so the Mets... Three nothing against the Marlins with Degrom on the hill. I mean, the the Marlins lineup is 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 unrecognizable, save for Starling Castro and Justin Bohr. Uh, the rest of that lineup is is not major league caliber. It's just not. So you know they've got three rookies essentially. Well, they've got Derek Dietrich in left field, who's really not a left fielder, um, but he can kind of hit a little. So he's playing left field, even though he's not um, a second baseman because Starling Castro is playing second base. Um, you know uh, their 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 best their other best player is J T Riamulto, the catcher who's hurt, um, and then you know the, you got three out the two other outfielders are guys they got in the trades uh, Brinson and uh, Braxton Lee, and you know their pitching isn't very good uh, they're just bad I mean they're they're a bad team they're they they are a hundred lost team so you would figure with Degrom on the hill and a three nothing lead uh, the Mets would win that game. Um, they didn't due to some shoddy fielding, uh, mostly by Todd Frazier. 
um, the Marlins were able to, to take the lead, actually 4-3, on a two-run homer by Bohr. But the Mets should have been out of the inning way before that. Um, and um, in any event, Mets came back to tie it at 4-4 on a home run by um, Asdrubal Cabrera. And then, no, sorry, my, my bad. Uh, Cabrera hit a home run earlier in the game. Um, they tied it at four, actually, on a double by Frazier, lead off the inning. Then he went to third, tagged up and went to third on, on a, a, you know, not a super deep fly ball, but a, a fairly deep fly ball to left field. Uh, but again, Mets know that Der- uh, Dietrich is a infielder by trade, not an outfielder, doesn't have a strong arm, so very heads up and alert. Uh, and savvy base running by Todd Frazier. And then he scored on a, a sack fly by Ligaris. So that's tied the game. Uh, then the Marlins went up 6-4 on another two-run homer by Jason Bohr. Um, Justin Bohr, rather. <laughs> Jason Bourne, I'm thinking of. Justin Bohr. Um, and uh, Jacob Rehm came in the game and served that one up. Um, which, by the way... Uh, I know Mickey Callaway so far, you know, look, Mets are 9-1, not a lot to complain about. Uh, with runner on second and two men out, there's absolutely no reason to be pitching to Justin Bourne in that situation in a tie game. None. He's the only hitter in that lineup, save for maybe Starling Castro, that scares you even a little bit. Ridiculous. Bad, bad move there by Callaway. Uh, cost the Mets two runs. They got out of the inning after that. They took Raym out. They brought in Paul Sewell, got one out. And then the Mets answered with a, a home run by uh, Wilmer Flores, who, you know, I've been singing his praises for a while, off a righty, by the way, off uh, Kyle Barbaraclaws, please. <laughs> and, uh, and then uh, as Drupal Cabrera on a 3-0 pitch, absolutely crushed one to right field to tie the game at six. Thrilling. Thrilling. And we've seen early in this season a couple of themes here. Mets very aggressive on the base paths and actually smart on the base paths as well, which is a major departure from the Terry Collins era. Anyone who's listened to this show for five minutes during baseball season has heard me bemoan the Mets' lack of base running acumen under the Terry Collins regime. And then also a bunch of guys swinging 3-0 and being aggressive and being rewarded for it. And as I used to always say, one of the things that drove me nuts about Terry Collins wasn't, of course, the the bad base running, but also the fact that every decision he seemed to make was fear-based. Everything. Everything was with the worst-case scenario in mind. Nothing was, you know, the Mets never hit and run under Terry because his response always was, well, we're not fast. And what if it's a strike him out, throw him out, double play? Not the other way around. What, What could be the positive result? It was always what the negative result could be. And Callaway seems to be the complete opposite. It's very refreshing. It's, a, it's, it's really a joy to watch. And the same thing with guys swinging at 3-0. Look, as Drupal Cabrera is a good, solid veteran hitter. He's not a superstar by any stretch, but I've said on many occasions he's a solid major league hitter, has been for a long time. And you got to trust these guys. If he thinks he can get... And listen, I understand if he pops that pitch up, you're, you're grumbling, right? You're down a run, try to walk. I, I get it. I see the other side of that. But again, sometimes success breeds success. And confidence breeds confidence. 
and the Mets are playing with a ton of it right now. All the sort of woe is me, hand-wringing that persisted and existed under the Terry Collins era seems to, be fl- it seems to have been flushed away. And it's really a breath of fresh air. So at 6-6, Mets get two guys on with the, the help of an error and a walk. And Cespedes comes up, who is mired in slump, has not really looked himself. Yes, he has three home runs, but other than that, and he had a broken bat, blue pit to win the game in extra innings against the Nationals on Sunday night. Um, but, you know, he's hitting under 200. He struck out a bunch. But he had a good matchup against uh, Brad Ziegler, who's not um, a hard thrower. He's, a, you know, one of these sidewinder guys, sort of, you know, undermariners, if you will, submarine guys. Uh, and he pulls a ball down the third baseline that the third baseman couldn't get to, down the line for a two-run double. Familia comes in with an uneventful ninth. One, two, three innings, strikes out uh, Boer on a nasty pitch looking, uh, sandwiched around a couple of, in between a couple of uh, ground outs, ball game, Mets, nine and one, best start in their history, the, the franchise. So obviously tons to be excited about, swept the Nationals in, the na- in Washington, D.C. over the weekend, right? Harvey did not look great Sunday night. Gave it the home run to Harper. Mets battled all night. Mets looked, It was a sloppy game, both teams. Bad base running by both teams. Sloppy defense by the Mets. Uh, Harvey made an error. Frazier made an error. Uh, a couple of plays that weren't made that could have been errors. Cabrera had a play that could have been an error. And, you know, so here's the thing. These plays that don't get made, right? And, again, this is another thing that analytics cannot quantify these plays that don't get made are there's so much more magnified and pronounced now because with the way the babying of starting pitchers now and the pitch counts right if a guy has to throw god forbid an extra 15 pitches as a result of a, a play not being made behind him it should be made be it an error or a play that should be made that but it gets you know scored a hit because the hometown official scoring it can play a huge role and you know, listen, despite the really good start here at 9-1, and one, no Mets starter has gone seven innings yet. The Mets have used their bullpen already so significantly to the point now where they had to send down Brandon Nimmo yesterday. Now, all indications that it'll only be for 10 days. And if, you know, look, at the end of the year, the Mets are in the playoffs. It's not going to matter. But it's ridiculous right now. Okay, I understand it to a certain degree. They they felt like they needed an extra arm yesterday. The Mets are going to be facing a few lefties. They've already pretty much said that Lagares is going to play against lefties. And look, Lagares has played well so far. Threw a guy out at the plate on Saturday. You know, his defense has always been great. His offense has been fine so far. You know, he's bad. He's gotten a few hits. They've been mostly largely meaningless. Did get a big sack fly last night to tie the game at four four. And looked like he knew what he was doing. After the previous at-bat to that, he swung at three pitches in the dirt. But Lagares is not the offensive player that Nimmo is. But So I get it in the big picture, the grand scheme of things. I kind of understand. You know, there's really probably no other option. And so he's going to go down, I guess, and get some at-bats and keep sharp. Although, look, you, Nimmo has already proven he's good coming off the bench. He's a good pinch hitter. 
guy who walks all the time and can hit, and now he's the, you know his power is starting to come around. So we'll see now in the next whatever nine games or nine days whether or not you know this move ends up biting the Mets in the rear. But look, the Mets have used their bullpen so much already in the first ten games of the year that they had to make this move. It, it, it's a little ridiculous. Now, I understand there's some mitigating factors here, right? Up until the series against the Marlins, the weather the Mets have played in has been a joke, okay? The weather has been ridiculously bad here in New York, and it was terrible in D.C. The game, the temperatures were in the 30s on that Sunday night game, okay? But anything for the almighty dollar in Major League Baseball, Sunday night games on ESPN, And by the way, while we're on the topic of Sunday night games, I mean, I I, I was excited at first because I wasn't here. I I was down in Florida on a golf trip. So I was like, oh, sweet. You know, and I was flying out back home on Monday morning. I'm like, great. Mets will be on tonight. I can watch the Met game in bed, basically. Um, It it is this this crew they've put together with A-Rod and Matt Vaskersian and Jessica Mendoza is such a disaster and the production itself is such a disaster first of all Vaskersian thinks he everything he says he thinks he has to be cute he sits there and 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 basically blows smoke up A-Rod's ass the whole time A-Rod is terrible by the way as 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 an in-game analyst he's awful first of all he says things that are simply just not true okay like like his Drupal Cabrera um, I mean, he, he he was talking about his Drupal Cabrera as if he was uh, Rogers Hornsby. It was ridiculous. Again, he's a nice player. A-Rod was giving him far too much credit. Um, then they showed a guy heating his bat, and A-Rod was like, no, you know, that actually works. And finally, Jessica Mendoza had, had enough. It was about the fourth thing he said that simply was just plain garbage. And she's like, really? How's that? And then he's like, well, it warms your hands. And she's like, well, yeah, but we're not talking about the hands. We're talking about actually heating up the bat. It was so dumb. Um, then he went on this whole diatribe about how he should have been more involved with the, the negotiations with the Mets and that he would have signed with the Mets. And then Jim Duquette, who was assistant GM at the time for the Mets, basically came out and called BS on that. It was like, yeah, he was gonna, we were going to maybe offer him $100 million, and he ended up taking 250 from the Rangers. Yeah, exactly. He was going to take $150 million less because he liked, cause Keith Hernandez supposedly was his favorite player growing up. And by the way, let's get to that, too. Let's do the timeline on that. A-Rod is, what, 41? I'm 49. So if, if, if Keith Hernandez was A-Rod's favorite player growing up, how does that work? Because Keith Hernandez was one of my favorite players growing up. The 86 Mets, I was in high school. I was 17. So that means A-Rod was, what, eight? Yeah, he was playing that close attention to the Mets that Keith Hernandez was his favorite player at eight years old? Give me a break. I mean, this guy's so disingenuous. He's such a phony. It is unbelievable. Keith, oh, Please. Anyway, so that Sunday night crew, Jessica Mendoza, by the way, is by far the best of the three. Uh, I mean, you could just see. She, she was just sitting there like, you know, she just must be thinking to herself, oh, my gosh, how, how is it that I have to sit next to this guy and work with this guy? He's terrible. He was not bad. To be fair, when he was in the studio for Fox for the playoffs in the World Series, he was actually pretty good in that venue. That environment was pretty good for him. Doing these games, he's awful. 
Terrible. I'm like, I'm, I'm nostalgic now for the days of angry Joe Morgan and John Miller. And then the, the other thing is, and this is not the announcer's fault. This is the production crew's fault and whoever directs these games. You know, I mean, and, and now because of also analytics, every single pitch and swing has to be overanalyzed to the nth degree. It's, it's, it's unbearable. It's insufferable. They're starting to, they're trying to cover baseball now like it's football. I mean, guys, see ball, hit ball. End of story. Enough already. With overanalyzing swing path and launch angle and his arm slot. And th- I mean, please. It's not interesting at all. It's just filler. Ugh. I swear, I don't know if I can keep up with the sport. I don't know if I can keep watching the sport. I can't. I mean, you know, five innings, 85 pitches. Great job. Great job. Now let's go. Let's get you the hell out of there. And, let's, and then now here comes, the, here comes the, 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 the endless parade of relief pitchers. Now the Mets may be in this new way of playing baseball because, again, nobody has the stones to actually pause for a second and say, wait a minute, maybe what we're doing is insane. Maybe managing the eighth game of the season like it's the seventh game of the World Series is not sustainable. But nope, let's all succumb to stupid groupthink. That's what everybody's doing, so we'll do it too. But the Mets actually may have an advantage because they have two former starters in their bullpen, Seth Lugo and Robert Gazelman, both of whom have pitched very well so far and have given the Mets multiple innings on multiple occasions. But again, even those guys have limits. It's 10 games into the season. This is not sustainable. And yes, I understand the weather and you're, you're trying to get to a point where the starters can get to 110 pitches, maybe 115, certainly DeGrom and Syndergaard. You know, Harvey, TBD, same for Mats. Mats is not great in his first start. By the way, he's very good in his second start. Now, again, it was only five innings, but he struck out eight and only gave up one run. I thought it would take him a little longer to find his groove, but, you know, and again, it's one start. I'm not going to go crazy. Just like I didn't go crazy, his first start wasn't very good. I'm not going to go crazy that his second start was very good. Again, by by the new new metrics now that five innings somehow is considered a good start. You know, uh, in the old days, I remember seven innings was, first of all, when I was growing up, complete games were commonplace for your best pitchers. I mean, you know, Dwight Gooden threw 250 innings, I think, 260 innings his rookie year at 19. uh, And, you know, did not experience any arm problems until way later in his career. And that probably had nothing to do with that, right? It's probably mostly due to his off-the-field issues. Um, Then it was seven innings for a long time. Then it was six, you know, and you wanted to have that one, that, that one, two, three punch, right, in the bullpen, seventh, eighth, and ninth guys. And now it's basically five. And have a guy that you hopefully can give you two, and then you patch together the eighth, and hopefully you have a closer for the ninth. And Major League Baseball wonders why the games are three and a half hours long. Yeah, it's because catchers are going out to the mound too many times in a game. Please, knock it off with that idiocy also. So, anyway, 
That's my state of the game. As a Mets fan, thrilled, 9-1, and one, love the tenor of this team, love the attitude. Uh, Frazier has not been great, but he, you can see his intangibles rubbing off on a team, the aggressiveness on the base paths. He's gotten a couple of clutch hits already. He's got the ugliest swing you'll ever see. I mean, he is unorthoman. I mean, that dude, ugliest swing in the world. Somehow, some, and then sometimes he'll rip pet balls. And you're like, what? He, you know, let's go with one hand. You think it's going to be a pop-up. Next thing you know, it's a line draw. I mean, very strange. Strange, strange player. But a winning player. Adrian Gonzalez has been great at first base. You know, hasn't hit great. Did have the big grand slam on Sunday night. But his fielding is impeccable at first base. You know, Rosario has missed a couple plays he should have made. Had an error the other night, but he's also made a cup turn, a really nice double play the other night. You know, you can tell the talent. The talent is undeniable with Rosario. You know, he's just super young and, and just needs some seasoning. But by all indications, he should be a very nice player. And while Cabrera doesn't have a lot of range at second base, he turns a double play beautifully, and he makes all the plays that he should make. And Frazier is, is I would say, t- you know, again, he's had a couple of hiccups here. He, he's a good third baseman. The Mets infield defense is vastly improved over what it was last year. And then anytime you've got Lagares in the outfield with Cespedes with that cannon and left, and he threw a guy out trying to stretch a single and a double the other night at second. Um, and, you know, Bruce is, is serviceable. He doesn't get to a lot, has a decent arm, but he's not a total disaster out there. Nimmo's adequate. I mean, the Mets' defense is, is, is vastly important. Now, it's still a mess behind the plate. Ploiecki and Darno are terrible. Although, now we just found out Darno somehow is hurt again. Has an ulnar nerve issue in his elbow. It's amazing. The guy's barely played this year, and yet somehow he's hurt again. And Ploiecki, other than a nice opening day, has been, a, 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 as, as expected, terrible, both offensively and defensively. So, you know what? I don't know what it would take, and I don't know if the Marlins would be willing to deal with the Mets because they're in their division, but I think they probably would be. But if JT Riamulto comes back and is healthy, the Mets need to be all in on trying to get him. And if it means Dom Smith, fine. Because the Mets have another slugging first baseman in double A named Peter Alonzo, and Wilmer Flores is just fine. He looked great, by the way, at first base last night. By the way, I've only been saying this for a year. If you told me tomorrow Wilmer Flores is going to be the Mets' everyday first baseman for the next three years, I'd say fine. No problem with that at all. Crushes lefties, has gotten better against righties, and he fields the position fine at first. It's by far the best position for him. So the Mets should be all in on trying to get JT Riomoto and as a backup, Jonathan Lucroy, who I believe is with the A's, who, you know, are, again, are not even trying. And it was the only place that he could go, and I think he's on a one-year deal. So it shouldn't take much to get him at all. And while he's not great, he's certainly an upgrade over Kevin Ploiecki and whomever else the Mets. I mean, look, they like this Thomas Nido or Tomas Nido. It's N-I-D-O. And he's coming up from Double from A tonight. And he looked okay in the spring. Suppose he's good defensively, at least. And that, that you know, I'll take that. Uh, probably going to take him a while for his offense to catch up. Um, but the Mets are really serious about this and making a run. They, they need to go upgraded at the catcher position. Now, as far as the Yankees are concerned, um, all these people that are surprised at the fact that uh, Mike Stanton or Giancarlo Stanton, whatever the hell his name is, is striking out a ton. 
Uh, I mean, have you, have you guys watched him? Anybody watch Mike Stanton play at all? Gian, sorry, Giancarlo Stanton? I mean, I, I told AG this when they got him. Look, he's going to, of course, going to mash some home runs. He's also going to have stretches where he looks like the worst hitter in baseball. I've seen it with my own eyes. He's had series against the Mets where he's killed them, and he's had series against the Mets where he literally cannot get the bat on the ball. I think there was a series against the Mets, maybe it was two years ago, when he was like 0 for 16 with 14 strikeouts in a three-game series. Something, something like that. I mean, this is not new, people. This is not surprising. And again, I know Aaron, Aaron Boone is a big slave to analytics, and he wants to bat Aaron Judge second and then Stanton third. Uh, Giancarlo Stanton is not by any stretch of the imagination. I don't care what the new analytics say or not, a third-place hitter. And to bat him and judge back-to-back, yes, I understand it's enticing because of the power potential. But guess what? You're going to have a lot of games when you're going, you're going to get 0 for 8 with 8 strikeouts between the two of them. You gotta sandwich somebody in there in the middle, and it should be Gregorius. If you're gonna idiotically insist on batting Aaron Judge second, then Gregorius needs to hit third, and Stanton should hit fourth. You need some guy that makes contact more in between both those guys who are all or nothing hitters. And please don't tell me about Aaron Judge's 330 batting average for the first half of the season last year, okay? That's number one. Number two, it's early. Everybody relax. The Yankees are five and six. I it's early. Okay. I understand everybody wants to crown them because of the uh, because they got Stanton. Um, it's five. It's eleven games. Everyone relax. Third, uh, they've got a ton of injuries. Right. Brandon Drury's hurt. Hicks hurt. Ellsbury hurt. By the way, Ellsbury. I, I, I'm surprised Ellsbury's not a Met. I mean, this guy is a China doll to the extent uh, he got hurt while rehabbing another injury. It's like the most Jacoby Ellsbury thing ever. He was rehabbing one injury and got another injury while rehabbing the other. I mean, eh, that's been a wretched signing for the Yankees, by the way. Wretched. So Ellsbury's hurt. Hicks is hurt. Uh... Frazier and the Miners is hurt. Sanchez is hitting 056. That's not going to last, obviously. And the one thing that might is concerning, though, is the bullpen's been bad. Right? Robertson gave up the grand slam to smoke. Uh, Canley's been bad, and he was awful last night against the Red Sox. Um, his velocity is way down. Now, he claimed it's not a physical thing. It's a mechanical thing. We'll see. But the starting pitch has been okay. I mean, look, Severino was not very good last night. Uh, I think you take that with a grain of salt. You, 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 you wash it away. You know, again, it was 38 degrees or something at game time. Hard to get a good feel. You know, apparently, you know, his slider, which is his wipeout pitch, even though he has a very good fastball, couldn't get a feel for it. I wouldn't worry too much about it. I don't think it was any kind of case that Severino couldn't handle the pressure against pitching the Red so- against the Red Sox and Fenway. I mean, come on. It's April. Not a big deal. Everybody just relax in Yankee land. They're going to be fine. They're going to be there at the end of the year competing for the division with the Red Sox. 
you know, again, if they stay relatively healthy, they're going to be banged up all year, and guys are going to be in and out in the lineup all the time. Well, then it could be a problem, of course. But I think Hicks is bet is due back soon. But they do got to get the bullpen uh, situation squared away for sure. All right, we'll take a short break, and then we'll be back right after this. And we are back here on another edition of Jamal About Sports. This portion of the show is brought to you by Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs. I am a dog. You are a little boy. But we can still be friends. Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs. All right, thank you for that. Uh, moving on. Actually, one more thing before we move ahead here to the NBA is I also wanted to point out a great sign of the new uh, Mets regime, a.k.a. Mickey Calloway and pitching coach Dave Island. So uh, I think we talked about Hansel Robles last week. Guy's got a great arm, had some success with the Mets in 15 and 16, had a very bad year last year, had a very poor spring this year. Gives up home runs at a very alarming rate, but definitely has stuff, has the arm. And, you know, he, he, he messed around with this quick pitch because three years ago when LaTroy Hawkins was here, he taught it to Familia, and then Familia taught it to him. And, you know, initially it was effective, but what they saw that ended up happening is he gets out of his mechanics. His mechanics get all out of whack when he rushes his delivery like that, and he hangs sliders, and his, flat, his fastball flattens out. So Dave Island, basically, and Mickey Cowley told him, knock it off with the quick pitch, okay? Go down to AAA. Repeat your delivery. Do it the way we want you to do it. Okay, We don't care if you strike out the world down there if you're not doing the things we tell you to do. And if you do what we tell you to do, you'll be back up here. If you don't, we don't care what the results are. You're not going to be here. So apparently he went down there. He worked on some stuff. Mets had a knee. They called him back up. He's been very good. He did give up a home run against uh, the Nationals in the National Series. But other than that, he's been very good. And last night, he, he, he pitched well also. So uh, he's been good since he's been back. He pitched well last night. But he did try the quick pitch once, and when he came back in the dugout, even after he struck out the last guy, a couple of guys got on, but he got through it and struck out the, the final batter. Dave Island went right over to him and started talking to him, basically telling him, look, we don't want that. And that is the kind of accountability that never existed under Terry Collins. So it is really refreshing to see. Look, I understand Cowboy's not been perfect. Talked about him pitching a bore last night when he shouldn't have. But um, there's just a whole new vibe and energy around this team. It's really fun. All right, moving on. NBA, last game of the year, I believe. Last game of the schedule. Um, and uh, let's take a look at the standings. So the NBA West... The East is pretty much set. You've got, yeah, it is set. Raptors are the one seed. Wizards are the eight seed. By the way, the Wizards, um, as long as John Wall is your best player, you're never doing anything. That's number one. Uh, Raptors, Wizards, 1-8. Celtics, Heat, 2-7. Now, the Celtics are compromised because no Kyrie Irving. He's done for the year with a knee injury. Um, I still think the Celtics uh, should get past the Heat, who also are not very good. Uh, the Sixers play the Bucks. That could, I mean, look, the Sixers are the hottest team in the league right now. They've won 15 games in a row. Um, 
they should dispatch of the Bucks, but you know it's a young Sixers team for the most part. We'll see. Not that the Bucks are a veteran-laden team; they're not either. The best player, you know, is Anton Tacupo. Um, but I think it could be at least an entertaining series. And then you got the Cavs and the Pacers at four-five. And again, Cavs won fifty games again this year. They play the Knicks tonight. I would assume they'll get to fifty-one unless they just sit everybody because um, they're locked in there. Um, but uh, I, I assume um, they'll win that game and go fifty-one and thirty-one. Uh, you know, in a season where uh, you know they had some injuries, with Kevin Love in particular. Uh, you know, they, they they turned over almost half their roster. So uh, it'll be interesting to see. And, you know, LeBron has basically has played every game this year and has put that team on his back. And if not for James Harden, uh, you could easily make a case that LeBron James is the, is the MVP of the league again. So that's the East. In the West, you've got the Rockets at the one seed. Um, it looks like right now the Timberwolves are in, but let's see. i got to go to the schedule here because – the Spurs and the Thunder are both 47 and 34, as are the Pelicans. And then Minnesota and Denver are both 46 and 35. So hold on. I got to take a look at the schedule and see because there could be a situation. Let's see here. You've got Utah. No. Denver plays in Minnesota. So I think if Denver wins, they're in. Minnesota's out. That's a big game. And then what's the other game? San Antonio, New Orleans? No, that doesn't, I don't think. Memphis at Oklahoma City? No. Let's see. I guess that's I guess that's the big game. I guess if. Denver beats Minnesota. Let me hold on. No, wait. Let me just go back. Yeah, if Denver beats Minnesota, Denver's in, Minnesota's out. Because Denver will then be 47 and 35, and Minnesota will be 46 and 36. So that game has huge implications. Um, That's it. Oklahoma City's in, Spurs are in, Pelicans are in, Blazers, Jazz third seed. 48 and 33. Quinn Snyder, got to be coach of the year, coach of the Jazz. And Donovan Mitchell, by the way, should be the rookie of the year. I don't want to hear it about Ben Simmons. He's a wonderful player. He's had a wonderful year. He's not a rookie. Okay, he was in the league last year. Just because he didn't play, because they trust the process, and they like to redshirt everybody every two seconds over there in Philadelphia, doesn't mean that he's a rookie. Okay, I know technically he's a rookie because he didn't play in any games last year. He's not a rookie. Donovan Mitchell is a rookie. He's played great. He should be the rookie of the year. And in fact, and by the way, as I've said before, and I'll say it a million times, uh, the, the Knicks not drafting this kid and taking Nilakina is, is going to be the is going to bite them for years to come. Let's just take a look at his stats for a second here. We've got he's averaged twenty points uh, with. Just a 3.7 rebounds, 3.7 assists a game, and one and a half steals, and 20 points per game on shot 44%, pretty good, 34% from three, not great. I assume he'll get better, uh, 81% from the line. He's had a great year. And again, I'm not saying Ben Simmons isn't great. He is. 
And he's a he's a wholly unique player. He's six eleven, plays point guard, you know, triple doubles, the whole the whole thing. I get it. He's a great player, but he's not a rookie. In my mind, Donovan Mitchell is the rookie of the year. And then the other thing is, if Westbrook gets sixteen rebounds tonight. Russell Westbrook, that is, my guy from OKC. He will have averaged a triple-double again this year, back-to-back years. That's insane, and yet nobody's talking about it. And even if he doesn't, by the way, he basically kind of averaged a triple-double this year. And I, and, and, and I understand they supposedly got him a, a ton of help with Paul George and uh, Carmelo, but as uh, we chronicled last week, Carmelo stinks, and Paul George has been okay. He hasn't been great. So, uh, you know, uh, he's needed to play this way again. Because, of course, there are those, some, you know, knuckleheads in the media taking shots at him, saying, you know, oh, he's just trying to pad his stats. I mean, if anybody watches Russell Westbrook play for four seconds and thinks that that guy is playing that way because he, he wants to get stats, they're insane. He plays with a ferocity and a passion that few other players have ever played with in the history of the league. Okay? Now, yes, does he try to put it on his shoulders too much? Sometimes. But it's not because he wants stats. Carmelo wants stats. Carmelo wants to let you know he's a scorer. Russell Westbrook's doing it because he thinks it gives his, chance, his team the best chance to win. I mean, you know, now we have to... I mean, it, it, it's unthinkable... This would have been unthinkable to criticize a guy that's about to come close to back-to-back triple doubles, averaging triple doubles, uh, you know, ten years ago even. And now all of a sudden we have to figure out a way to, to, to knock that kind of a performance. It's absurd because we got way too many shows with too many people with far too much time on their hands and far much far too much airtime to fill. So let's try to take shots at Russell Westbrook. It's like Skip Bayless has, you know, built a cottage industry taking shots at LeBron James this whole time. It's absurd. And you know me. I am in a kind of class. I like to take shots at, at at the guys at the top of the mountain all the time. But I feel like I do it when it's warranted. And again, I'm not saying Russell Westbrook's a perfect player. He does try to do too much at times, no question. But his heart's in the right place. So they're going to Oklahoma City's going to play Golden State in the, in the first round. That should be interesting. No Curry for that. And Golden State's look bad, by the way. I mean, they are limping here down the stretch, literally. I mean, I understand they've got Thompson's back, Green's back, Durant's back. But how healthy those guys really are remains to be seen. And, you know, guys like Iguodala and Livingston have not played as well as they have played in years past coming off the bench. So that, that, that could be interesting. And Oklahoma City apparently has the best record in the league against teams that are going to make the playoffs, which is also interesting. And a, a sneaky little pickup by OKC was getting Corey Brewer who is not much of a scorer. He's not a scorer at all. But he's a great finisher out on the break. But what he does is bring great defense in the backcourt. He's long, long arms, quick. He's a pest. He could be a problem for Golden State. If he gives Klay Thompson all kinds of fits, and he can, that's 
That, that series could be very interesting. All right, finally, we're going to wrap it up on this. The NFL draft coming up. And again, in this world of hot takes, uh, I guess the most polarizing player in this draft is Baker Mayfield, quarterback out of Oklahoma. And, and frankly, I don't understand why. I mean, listen, we, we've talked about him on the show before, right? I'm During the college football season, um, talked about the stuff Kansas, um, where he grabbed his crotch and screamed at the bench, but that was after Kansas refused to sh- the players refused to shake his hand uh, at the coin toss to start the game. Um, you know, he planted the flag, the Oklahoma flag, in the middle of the field at Ohio State after they beat Ohio State. I mean, we, we are nitpicking here, folks. Yes, he got arrested once for drunken and disorderly two years ago. Dumb college kid doing dumb college things. Okay. College kids do dumb things. They drink too much. I, I can attest to that myself. Okay. Doesn't mean uh, I'm a bad person. Doesn't mean he's a bad person. Doesn't mean he's a bad leader. Okay. And, it's, and to compare him to Manziel is just lazy and, and frankly, it's false. Okay. I mean, look, Johnny Manziel has legit mental illness. Okay. And I'm not, ma- I'm not saying this to make light of that. That's a real thing. Okay, we're finally now as a society starting to recognize that. But to me, that's the same as looking at a guy and saying he's got a hurt shoulder. Okay, if your mind is not right, if you're if you're suffering from depression, how are you expected to operate your job? I don't care what that job is. I don't care if it's playing sports or if you're a CPA. It makes everything harder. If you've got bipolar disorder and it's not being treated properly, your whole world is, you feel like you're at sea the whole time without a life raft. I mean, so, and that's what Manziel was dealing with, plus substance issues as well, which were probably a result of those things. So to compare Baker Mayfield to Johnny Manziel is insane. So, look, he's 6'1", okay? I don't want to hear that he's too short. Aaron Rodgers is 6'2". Drew Brees is 6 feet. Russell Wilson's maybe 6 feet. Jimmy Garoppolo, who everybody's in love with now, is 6'2". Matthew Stafford is 6'2", I think. Maybe 6'3". Probably 6'2". Baker Mayfield's 6'1". So don't give me he's too short. He certainly has an NFL body. He's not slight by any stretch. He's got a strong lower half, the most accurate passer in the draft, and I think the best leader. Again, go by what his teammates say. I don't want to care, I don't care about what all the, the talking heads think, okay? Watch the way his teammates followed that guy. To me, it's clear cut he's the best quarterback in this draft. And look, I like Josh Rosen. I'm liking Josh Rosen more and more. The more people take idiotic shots at him because he comes from a rich family. Oh, I'm sorry. Did the crown princes of of college football and then the NFL, uh, Peyton and Eli Manning, they grew up on hard scrabble streets? I don't think so. How do the long kids do? How do Chris Long and Kyle Long do? Just fine. 
I don't think they were they were uh, worried about where their next meal was coming from as Howie Long's kids. And again, I'm not criticizing them for that. Good for them. Their fathers were wealthy men. Great. This idea that Josh Rosen can't be a good quarterback or a leader because he comes from a, a wealthy family is ridiculous. And of course, you know his own coach, his, t- his ex-coach, by the way, Jim Ward Jr., who stunk at UCLA, by the way, the least disciplined, worst coach team I've seen in college football in a long time, the times I watched UCLA this year. The dumbest penalties you'll ever see. And by the way, look at, U- look at UCLA's team. They put multiple guys in a pro's since Jim Moore Jr. has been, been there. Yet they didn't do a damn thing. That tells you a lot to me. He did a lousy job there. And now he wants to try to take be- shots, backhanded you know, compliments, and thinly veiled references to Josh Rosen. Why? Because he doesn't like his politics. Because Jim Moore Jr. is probably a big Trump guy. And, and, and Josh Rosen wore a hat that said F Trump. Please. The thing that would scare me about Josh Rosen is he looks a little like he might have a bit of a slight frame, and he had two concussions in college. But all the other stuff to me is there. And by the way, interesting article about when he was in high school, his team was playing a game, uh, I think in Hawaii. For some reason, it was going to cost the players or their families like $1,500 to be able to afford to travel to get there. And so he came up with a way to raise money so that all of those, the, 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 the more, the, the less fortunate teammates of his whose family might not be able to afford it could get that paid for. See, it sounds like a pretty good leader to me. Sounds like a good kid to me. But to me, Baker Mayfield is the clear-cut best quarterback in this draft. I don't want to hear about Josh Allen and his big arm. Okay, he has terrible vision and bad footwork. Now, could he be a good player? Yeah, in three years. He's got to sit behind somebody, and he's got to be in the right system with the right coaches and develop into a good player. Can that happen? Yes. He's not ready to play day one, not by a long shot. Darnold, I like also. Same thing, though. Needs to sit and learn for a year, at least. Mayfield coming to play right away. And if the Jets traded up from 6-3 to three and gave up all of what they gave up, which is two second-round picks and some other stuff, okay, three second-round picks, two this year, for a team that needs a lot, for them to trade up and not take Baker Mayfield is insane. And if it's Josh Allen, that would be the most Jets thing ever. I really hope, I would love to see Baker Mayfield on the Jets. I think it's a perfect match. You talk about a guy who's not going to be afraid to go up and play against the Patriots. He's not going to kneel at the altar of Belichick and Brady. Baker Mayfield's that guy. All right, that's going to do it for tonight's show. As always, thanks for listening. Check us out on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Twitter, at JamalAboutSport, on Instagram, JamalAboutSports, and on Facebook as well. Have a great night. Have a good week. We'll be back next week with another show. Until then, peace out.